0: Ashley Banfield here, and this is Rising Tide, the place where I bring some of the greatest mentor minds to you. If you care about your craft and you want to be better at what you do, I want to help you with that. You know, it's easy to assume that you need an Ivy League education to really make it big. But each month, I feature VIP mentors who are leaders in their industry, and they say, that's not true. They're going to prove to you that you don't have to have highbrow connections to create your own personal best. And they've agreed to share their tips, their secrets, and their career advice with you. This is Rising Tide. Mentorship is everything, honestly. And the guy who is on the screen with me, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, you know, your resume, Sanjay, is so long, but there are two words that sum you up beautifully if you ever need a short bio, and that is excellent human.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot.
0: Well, I mean it. Uh, You know, I'm not blowing smoke, kiddo. Um, I've worked with you for a long, long time, and I miss you like, you know, peas and carrots miss you. I'm going to give a quick bio to all the folks that have joined us because I can't read your whole bio. It takes more than half an hour. <laughs> so here it is. Okay. Sanjay obviously is the chief medical correspondent for CNN. You all know that. He's also the host and um, producer of uh, the podcast and series Chasing Life. Uh, he's an associate professor of neurosurgery at Emory University Hospital and you know the associate chief of neurosurgery at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. He's a 60 Minutes contributor. He's the author of three count him three New York Times bestsellers. He co-founded the Life Itself Conference. Um, You know, when he's not busy, he practices neurosurgery every week, which is, you know, that's just extra. Uh, Somehow he keeps fit and healthy enough to be called um, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, which I think is a feat in itself with that resume. You've covered every major story, Sanjay, and more than I have, which makes me angry because I don't have the brain surgery part. (laughs) You've done 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the Iraq and Afghan wars. Simultaneously, if you don't know this, everybody, Sanjay also has performed life-saving brain surgery while covering these stories, not just once, a couple of times. Uh, So it's no surprise that President Obama reached out to Sanjay and asked him to be his Surgeon General, uh, to which Sanjay replied, but I love my practice, um, which is like, again, so incredible. Sanjay, welcome and thank you for doing this for everybody.
1: Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. It's, it's so good to to see you, Ashley. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real honor. Thank you.
0: Well, let's kick it off with this. How do you do it? How do you do all of that?
1: Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't think, uh, you know, you have an exact plan for these sorts of things. I remember thinking earlier in life, if I could have met somebody who could have just... Uh, help me plan, organize my life and figure out how to prioritize things, that probably would have been the most helpful, more helpful than learning the specific things around uh, journalism or neurosurgery, just sort of figuring out the, the machinations of life. But, you know, you, you, you sort of figured out as you go along. I've been 20 years sort of in this bifurcated life of, of medicine, which I still consider my primary job, and, and then the work in, in journalism. And there are times when it's really busy, you know, it's sort of both professions can get really busy at the same time. And then there's times when it's not as busy and uh, you try and take advantage of those times as well. So I think you got to be really well organized. I will say as well that I I don't know if you know this, Ashley, but I also have three teenage girls in in the house now. So that is another, you know, significant, significant part of my life. And you sort of balance it. I'm grateful every day uh, just to be able to do it. I think that helps mentally. Um, keep me enthused and excited about things.
0: The fact that you said three teenage girls kind of blew my mind because I have two teenage boys and I can't handle it. And I know everybody (laughs) is going to say the same thing. They're harder when they're girls as teenagers. (laughs) I'm the one I'm the one exception to that. (laughs) So okay, All right. So um, there's a lot of times, Sanjay, I'm sure you've witnessed this over the last 20 years. Uh, the profession of reporter correspondent has started to blend with expert, meaning there are a lot of doctors who are medical correspondents and lawyers who are legal correspondents. And mm. you know we can go down the run of professions. I wanted to ask you, because you're, you are one of those. Is that the only way or is it still OK to have the correspondents who are career correspondents uh, who maybe didn't practice or, or didn't step foot in a courtroom on the other side of the bar?
1: I think the second thing that you mentioned I think is perfectly okay and and very welcome. I mean in many ways you know when I'm doing my journalism work I think of myself primarily as a as a journalist who has this has this informed background you know in in medicine and science. Um but you know part of I think being a journalist is digging into things uncovering things that are not you know well known and medicine oftentimes it's you know things are uh, in textbooks. You're you're looking at journal articles, uh, things like that. But in order to actually advance stories, I think that is a that is a different skill set. So I have uh, obviously a lot of background in medicine and science. I also have a lot of people that I can call on who are who are experts in in particular areas. As a neurosurgeon, I know you know obviously neurosurgery really well, but. You know, if, there's, if it's nephrology or obstetrics or whatever it may be, the story revolves around immunology, as we've seen over the last couple of years. I, like any other correspondent, you know, do the same, same work. So I don't think you need to be a doc, go to med school, do residency to be a medical correspondent by any means. In fact, there's lots of examples of that uh, who are just terrific uh, reporters who did not have that background and are constantly advancing the knowledge tree
0: good contacts is also uh you know key yeah. if if you're going to be in the field. Okay, I'm going to go right to our uh, amazing uh group of of people who are joining us, our attendees. Welcome to all of you and thank you for doing this. It's great to see your tiny little faces. I know on our last <laughs> session with Gail King Everybody uh, couldn't see each other, so I'm glad you can all toggle around and see who's there, and maybe say hello to a friend of yours in the in the chat, as though we were in an auditorium, which maybe one day we will be, but not right now. So Shane Gustafson is actually a colleague of mine at News Nation, and he sent in this question for you, Sanjay. As a very well accomplished medical professional working in the media, how do you treat the political polarization of COVID and other health conditions? It seems some doctors are even getting swept into the political rhetoric, and some viewers believe only what their side tells them. To believe. Does this ever get frustrating that your experience is called into question?
1: Yes. I mean, it, it can be frustrating to be perfectly candid at times. It can be frustrating, but th- this is not new for for a lot of medical reporters, even though for many people over the last couple of years, it's been what they're seeing is a, a more pervasive sort of entangling between public health and, and politics. But, you know, I, we were working on a documentary film even before the pandemic started, Uh, around the measles outbreaks um, that had occurred in 2016-17 timeframe. And there was a a lot of politics around vaccine hesitancy at that time as well. There's always a, a lot of intermingling between politics and public health when it comes to health policy, you know, determining how the country moves forward in terms of our health policy, how we spend money you know, we're spending trillions of dollars—four trillion dollars, roughly—on healthcare every year. Those were some of the the most political sort of, I think, discussions that uh, intertwined with with medicine and public health. But having said that, I am I am surprised at how political some things have become. And I think you know, there's this there's this idea sometimes that within medicine and science, a hundred percent certainty is the 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 benchmark. They think of science like math. Two plus two is always going to equal four. So science and, and, and public health should always have that level of certainty. Whereas for most people who practice within that field, it is a organic experience in the sense you're constantly learning, you're constantly sort of uh, increasing your, your overall fund of knowledge, but also monitoring how things change, uh, you know, advances in heart disease, advances in cancer. We obviously do things very different now than we did 10 years ago with regard to those things if you were to go back and look well in 2000 you said this about cancer well yeah but that was 2000 two plus two still equaled four in 2000 but how we treat cancer think about cancer is very different so i think that that's a fundamental sort of issue if people make something political and then they demand certainty uh, uh on one side and they said well you you weren't certain or what you said now it no longer applies then it becomes a my side has won sort of debate, which wow. I think that that's it's it's challenging. The you one know, one other thing I'll say, Ashley, uh, and you and I have been doing this a long time, but I think the the ability to get confirmation bias nowadays is is easier than ever. You could yeah. go online and look up anything. You could say whatever you want to say. You know, uh, teenager, certain deaf vaccine, you know, keywords, and you'll find papers that say, absolutely, that's, that's the case. Teenagers will absolutely die if they get vaccinated or whatever it may be. So I think it's, it's, and that's, that's a problem. I think I'm a, I'm a fan of the democratization of information. I have believed in that. I wasn't one of those docs who said WebMD shouldn't exist. I think more information, the better, but I do think we have to figure out um, how to, to parse some of this out. And I won't say good information versus bad or true versus false, because again, things change. But how do you find sources that you can trust that aren't just confirming your bias?
0: I'm writing down um, confirmation bias to remind myself because my brain is old and I forget because I love that actual expression. And I think it should be your next series after, you know, weed was such a great name, (laughs) I think, uh, and such a good series. Okay, Jim Hart from Phoenix has this question for you, Sanjay. What, motive, uh, what motivated you to go on Joe Rogan and do more journalists today have a responsibility to do interviews like that?
1: Yeah, no, I, um, I'm i glad I went on Joe Rogan. So, you know, I had been talking to, to Joe for some time, just the backstory, you know, we, we speak on the phone quite a bit and he had asked me to be on the show. As you know, you got to get a, approvals for all that sort of stuff. But eventually- I, I uh, agreed to do it, got approval to do it, and was glad I did it. I think, I think we are increasingly living in a pretty siloed, increasingly siloed media environment. I, I guess that's probably no surprise to anybody. Um, and this has some, some sort of overlap with the, with the notion of com- confirmation bias. Again, you're, you're looking for sources of information that are going to uh, you know, sort of um, validate your existing beliefs. And that's been happening for some time. I I really think that once newspapers became predominantly read online versus the hard copy, uh, we started to see real flashes of that because I used to love just reading the newspaper. And I would, oh, I would never have thought to Google that article, but suddenly I learned something and it taught me something, gave me a little bit of a different perspective on something. I think we lose that more and more uh, with this increasingly siloed. Media environments. So I, I do think there's an obligation for people to get outside their silos and have conversations. I think for that reason, just to break down the walls of those silos, but also it, it gets pretty toxic. I think sometimes because if people aren't talking to each other, I think sometimes they're just assuming the worst uh, of each other, of the other, you know, whatever it may be. So being able to actually have conversations is important. Now it's challenging. Because again, we live in an environment where you can you can find um, results on on Google. You can find papers. You can find data to, to support your point of view on things. Now, a lot of times, that's that data may have not been vetted. It may not hold up under further scrutiny. But that's not what the lay public is often seeing. They're seeing, you know, in the case of the, the pandemic, for example, uh, a vaccine doesn't work. Vaccines lead to death. That you know, whatever it may be. You will find papers that say that, sometimes even printed in medical journals. And I think it's really hard uh, then to, to, be, to basically have a discussion around things where there are so many different sort of sets of, of facts or data or knowledge that people are drawing on. So overall, I, I absolutely think it's important to, to uh, try and break down those silos, to turn down the heat on things with regard to, you know, whether it's the pandemic or anything else. But also, you know, recognize that we live in a world where people may be very fully convinced that they are right because they are they're getting that information in ways that they hadn't gotten before. And it continuously validates their point of view.
0: You know, you just gave me another idea. We need a newsletter in the morning that goes out saying, uh, oh, both sides. You know, it's not just your own siloed information. You're actually opening yourself up to that newspaper that you said that you open up and, and enjoy Finding something you might not have Googled. I think it's great. Okay, Heidi from San Diego. Um, What is your advice to people in other professions who want to become journalists? When do you know when you should leave your main profession to go into broadcast news or uh, don't quit your day job? (laughs) I added that last part.
1: Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't know that those are the only two options. I mean, I think it is possible. um, It can be a very busy life, but it is possible to maintain a, a significant, you know, Day job or whatever you want to call it, and then also have this other part of your life, um, as as I did. I still, you know, as I mentioned, neurosurgery is still how I think of my my life and my day job, and I you know spent a lot of time doing that. So I don't think you have to necessarily pick one or over the other, but it does become a very busy life, and I think you have to just be realistic about um, that. You know, I, I don't really take vacations. I don't get many weekends. I you know my my life is, is pretty busy in order to accomplish these things. I have to, to make those sacrifices. And again, I'm not complaining. I love my, my jobs. Um, but, but you have to just be realistic about that. What I would say is that, you know, if you are somebody who's in a profession outside of journalism and you're thinking maybe I want to either add journalism to my life or I want to transition to it completely, you know, I think it is worth, um, sort of uh, getting a little bit of experience in that field in a, in a meaningful way before making any big decisions and not, not in any way to minimize either profession, but uh, start writing, for example, perhaps in in, around your subject matter expertise, but for a lay audience, Um, understand like how that, you know what? What sort of reporting you might do if you're a financial person, for example. What would you do as a reporter? Have story ideas and see how they would play out, and and then gradually, you know, do more and more. You can start contributing to a local newspaper. There's obviously lots of digital properties you can contribute to, and you know, get your get your sort of feet wet, so to speak. Um, and if you if you continue to to like it and feel like you're you're making strides. Then think about either transitioning or, or, you know, adding that that part of, um, you know, journalism to that part of your life. It's, it's, again, not I did this 20 years ago and things were different. There weren't a lot of medical reporters back then. Um, there's a lot more medical reporters now. So if you're a doctor thinking about doing it, I think there's a lot of options to add journalist or, or at least contributor uh, to, to your life.
0: Yeah like if you you know uh, in the field of business and you decide to write and you just throw arbitrage in there you, you kind of have to know that the average guy out there is not going to know what that three syllable
1: word is. Right. I mean being able to explain things I think is probably one of one of the most important facets of the job especially if you're a specialty sort of journalist and mm-hmm. you know uh, nowadays my oldest is 16 so she is oftentimes my sounding board if I can if I feel like I can explain it to her well um, then I feel like it's probably pretty good, but you're absolutely right. The, the words you choose, the language overall, the tone, you know, your story selection, all of that are things that you have to think about.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because I often thought of my career early on. I was a translator. Um, I was a translator not of language but of concept, uh, you know, complex concept that I spent my whole day trying to sort through that the average person out there, is hearing for the first time. So I a that's great right. advice. Okay. Uh, Chris from Nextar asks this. Uh, you're a journalist and an expert in an important field. What is your advice for journalists as we screen experts to have on our shows? It's hard to find qualified people, and people often try to pass themselves off as experts. How can I better be better at making sure I get quality experts and I don't drop my standards uh, for the pressure of booking a guest? Great question.
1: It is. It's a really good question, and I, and I got to say, I really give a lot of credit um, to to you know working at a at a company like this you have these amazing bookers and producers who are doing exactly that and i'm glad you asked the question because it's not easy i mean for for myself personally oftentimes when we're booking an expert it's because the expert it has somehow uh, been in the news because they've written a paper or something like that that has advanced you know how we think about a particular topic uh, and that's that's oftentimes you know how they will first sort of come to us uh, uh, because they did something in that area. You also have people who are just very skilled communicators who are very good at um, explaining things, describing things, and you know those are certainly people that we look for. And there's lots of opportunities to find those people because there's so many outlets nowadays. So people are, are you know they're doing things online; uh, they have their own digital platforms, and we're constantly looking to those people. We follow people on social media. Because we want to understand, you know, if, you know, there may be people who are really good at what they do, have no desire whatsoever to be on television. They have, and we run into that a fair amount. They don't want to do the sort of public facing part of that job. They think I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm a physician, whatever it may be. That's what I want to spend all my time doing. Totally understand that. But if they have a big social media platform and they're clearly out there trying to deliver a message, that's a, that's a flag that maybe this person would be interested So, uh, for me, you know, if I'm going to be interviewing somebody for a piece or something, I'll often spend some time with them if I don't know them already, just like this on a Zoom lately or a phone call, you know, just to sort of get an idea of who they are, how well they might explain things. And then, of course, we want to, you know, have the the pretty rigorous vetting that happens, again, in a place like CNN. Who are they? What kind of papers have they written? What's their educational background? Are they qualified to speak on this matter? Why are they qualified to speak on this matter? There's editorial meetings where this may come up. Like, who is this expert? And being able to to, um, uh, really give that person's bio and their background and uh, explain why you're using them as an expert is something you just have to go through in your own mind. And it's a good exercise because you want to make sure that you're putting people out there who are are, uh, qualified to be in that position. They don't always get it right. There are people there have been situations where uh, people with fancy titles and and seemingly great you know backgrounds have also said things that were deliberately, as it turns out, not true. So you have to make sure, you know, you're not just be impressed by the 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 uh, overall bio of the person, but really understand who they are.
0: I mean, it's Herculean. If you think of, you know, every broadcast day from whole cloth and the number of guests and, and uh, appearances that are booked daily on 24-Hour News, it is remarkable that there aren't more, you know, catastrophic bookings out there.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, I think one, one sort of shortcut, although it's not perfect by any means, is also being really um, uh, diligent about looking for conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. I mean, they exist everywhere. And it's interesting, again, straddling these two worlds of medicine and media, the way many medical meetings, for example, neurosurgery meetings sort of handle conflict of interest is different. And I think how the world of journalism does. So in many medical meetings, you have to disclose at the beginning of a talk that you may be given. I also work for Medtronic, I, I'm a consultant for, you know, sophomore Danic, whatever it may be at the beginning of your talk, then you can give the talk. And the audience is sort of left to sort of say, okay, well, that was a very interesting talk, but I have to weigh it with the fact that this person is also receiving money from this organization. So it's really kind of on the listener in medical meetings to sort of make their judgment then. Do I trust that information less now? Because I know this person, uh, is, is also being paid, uh, by the company that, uh, is uh, making that particular device or whatever it may be. In journalism, it's, it's really, I mean, conflicts of interest are a real problem. You, we, I think there's more of an assumption of someone has a conflict of interest that the, that the um, information or knowledge they may be giving may be more tainted. Not always, but maybe, regardless, I think there's a real lesson. It has to be disclosed. You have to disclose it.
0: A lot of times I say the two uh, best questions in any kind of journalistic practice is follow the money and follow your gut. It is yeah. remarkable, Sanjay, how many times I've had a funny feeling about someone uh, only to have it play out to be true. It, it was funny for a reason. And uh, the gut is a, a very good uh, first step at, uh, at, you know, vetting. Okay. Uh, I like this one, John from Rockford. Um, and this is perfect for you Sanjay because even after you became a neurosurgeon and then, you know, ended up in journalism, you ended up in foreign correspondence as well, which I'm sure you weren't expecting. But John asks, how should a young reporter prepare to become a foreign correspondent? What advice do you have about how to prepare to report overseas?
1: Yeah, I, this is, that's a great question. And, and I did not expect that, you know, just, just, Quick background, you know, Ash, I don't even know if you know this, but when I started at CNN, and this was back in 2001, um, you know, I, I'd been working at the White House, I was uh, working primarily on domestic policy, healthcare policy, that was a sort of natural tie-in. And, and then after that, I had, you know, I was in practice in, in neurosurgery, I had taken a year to go basically do this speech writing and domestic policy work at the White House. Um When I came to, I moved to Atlanta because I took a job at Emory, the Emory Clinic, and and then um, had run into some of the people that I had met at the White House who were, you know, uh, involved with with journalism, and they asked me if I'd be interested in talking about healthcare policy on television. This was the summer of two thousand and one. In fact, it was August of two thousand and one, and then three and a half weeks later, nine eleven happened. Um, I was thinking that I was coming here to sort of, you know, be a a sort of subject matter expert around healthcare policy and then they sort of came to me and said you know to be clear we're probably not going to be talking about healthcare policy for a while given what is happening in the world right now and so all of a sudden it was a a rapid sort of change in my life they asked would you be interested in covering first what was happening in New York you know and and not just the attacks but the burn patients and then there was anthrax and then it was would you you know, what about going into places like Afghanistan? I mean, the, the medical stories there are sort of um, remarkable stories and we think they don't, they don't get told enough. What do you think? And, and I was very interested in that. So it was a rapid change of, of life for me. And just in some ways, I think, you know, serendipitous, um, in some ways quite shocking, you know, jarring for me, what I would say more than anything, when I look back and say, how did I make that transition? Um, there, there's tangible things that you go through. There is you know, training uh, to, to be able to be a, a reporter in a war zone. And uh, many big journalistic organizations offer that. It's something worth learning about, even if you're just thinking about being a foreign correspondent. But also um, uh, spending time with other foreign correspondents. I think that that would be the biggest key. Find people. Whoever's asking the question has probably been inspired by somebody who is a foreign correspondent or a group of people call them. I get calls all the time from people who are thinking, I want to be a medical correspondent. They've never done anything in this field at all. And I, as much as I can, I take those calls, talk to those folks. Because when I was thinking about this, I called a guy named Tim Johnson, who was at ABC at the time, sort of the grandfather of, of medical correspondence. He didn't know me from anybody. There was no reason for him. To... I just called him because I, you know, CNN had come to me with this offer. He called me back within half an hour. We spoke for half an hour and I never forgot the conversation. It was one of the most impactful conversations. So I'm not saying every foreign correspondent will call you back, Yeah, but I bet you they will. I bet you some will. And that's probably your best bet at learning, not just the, the, the process of becoming a foreign correspondent, but the nuances as well, because there's lots of nuances. How do you assimilate into a culture? How do you prepare for these foreign trips? How do you pack your bag? How do you learn the language? How do you, you know, how do you sit at a restaurant? It's amazing that one guy told me, don't wear pants with belt loops in, in war zones because if you wear belt loops, someone, that's how people were kidnapped. They grab you by the belt loop. It's very hard to wow. escape that and put you into a car before you realize what's happening. Never, I would have never thought of that. I never um, heard
0: that tip, but thanks.
1: <laughs> there you go. There I could have used go.
0: that about 20 years ago. It's funny you should say that the people who call you back, Sanjay, Peter Jennings called me back. When I was a kid in Calgary, Canada, uh, stomping around as a business reporter, I re- reached out to, to, to Peter. I had done some favors for ABC in Moscow during um, uh, world travels of mine while well, they were, um, and I digress here, but they were doing a summit with um, uh, Gorbachev at the time. Um, and uh, he called me back and gave me advice and said, if you wanna be a foreign correspondent, uh, don't start thinking you're gonna work your way up the ranks of you know, world news tonight. Say go over and uh, go somewhere and ask to work in the smaller places because they're always yeah. desperate for people to work. And then all of a sudden producers get on the air real darn quick because they're short staffed at all times. I remember that being really great advice, you know, um, really and, nice to
1: hear that someone at his caliber, his level yeah. two, t- took the time.
0: Yeah. And he even looked at my tape, which was even more mind blowing <laughs> at the time because that you had to go into an edit bay and throw the three quarter right. thing in there. And yes, I'm old. Uh, Tulsi, uh, Kamar, uh, Tulsi Kamath. Also from Nextar, um, Telsey asks this, since the start of the pandemic, most reporters have had to do some kind of medical science reporting without expertise or in many cases without even experience. This has resulted in some loosey-goosey news reports that cite experts without fact checks. Um, what do you think are the most important things for reporters without a science or medical background to remember? Do you think news has largely gotten it right or wrong during the pandemic uh, with accurate life-saving reporting?
1: Okay, well, uh, so the two questions in there. First of all, in terms of you know um, reporting on on these types of matters and and the, the concern about does it become too loosey goosey? Yeah, I think that's a real concern. I mean, keep in mind what I said earlier. There, we are dealing with a field that isn't like math. There is there is a, a an organic nature. Things change. How uh, these Omicron variant, for example, versus the Alpha and the Beta, and the Delta variants. It's different. Um, The same was the case back 100 years ago with the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. That flu virus changed. And in some ways, we have remnants of that flu virus from 100 years ago that still circulate today. It's obviously not the same in terms of what it was doing to society at that time. So, you know, uh, you just keep in mind that there's not always necessarily a right or wrong answer. Something could be right for the moment at the time. And uh, with the full expectation, as most Scientists will say, uh, you know, here's what I can say now based on the data that we have now. And again, whether it's pandemic or cancer or heart disease or diabetes, whatever, things do change in terms of how we uh, approach some of these uh, diseases or, or disorders, whatever they may be. I do think that it's really important to vet your reporting, though. You know, let's say you're reporting on a particular journal article. And you're giving the, the 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 bottom line of what the journal article is showing, but context is really important, I think, as well. So, what I what I recommend, and what we do a lot is, we do have a few sort of experts who are independent, and that's a whole nother thing. But they're independent for a lot of reasons that we sort of establish them to be independent, looking in their conflict of interest, looking at their background, all the stuff, and and we'll oftentimes go to them. And we'll sort of say this is off the record or background call. Here's, here's how we're interpreting this data. Here's how we're throwing arrows at it. We will be our biggest critic of what we're reporting. Tell us why we're right or wrong and have that conversation. And I think it's important, especially, again, with subject matter expertise. I'm a doctor, but that doesn't mean I'm an uh, expert in immunology or nephrology. As I said at the beginning, I oftentimes go to my own sources on these things, and there's many of them and not just one on any particular topic, and make sure that I'm really vetting this, this very carefully. Even in a two-minute package or news segment, every word um, you know, we really think about. Uh, we think about whether or not we're going to use a modifier. Should we say just 4%? Well, 4% may be a lot. So maybe we shouldn't say just 4% or only 4%. Um, so every word matters, and the subject matter experts that you develop relationships with can really help there. So try and be as, as informed as possible with, uh, don't editorialize as much as uh, any more than you need to editorialize to make something clear and do vet, uh, with people who you, you really trust.
0: Sanjay, I wish I had booked you for an hour, um, but the seminar is always a half hour, so people can fit it into their busy schedules, not the least of which uh, you and your busy schedule. So no. I promise not to keep you longer. You already gave me two extra minutes of your time, which means that no. seven other jobs won't get done of yours today. <laughs> but um, listen, you are, uh, you remain one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, I could just listen True. to you forever. <laughs> Thank I, you so much, Sanjay, for this. Well,
1: Uh, I just got to say, it's a real pleasure, you know, and I got, you know, it's been tough to, to um, talk to people, you know, meet with people during the pandemic for, and so it's just, it's good to see your face and everyone who's, who's watching. Thank you. You know, it's a, I'm glad you're doing this. Uh, I I hope people get to do more of this because I think human connection like this is necessary. I used to think of social things as a frivolity, as a luxury. Mm -hmm. And now I realize I think more than ever that they're necessary. Not that this was social, but it felt, felt social. And I thank you for that.
0: Well, and I'm thrilled with all the folks who are are watching this right now, everybody in the gallery right now, thank you so much for doing this as well. Um, I really truly believe Sanjay that uh, had I had A mentor, or had these opportunities to hear from people like you much earlier in my career, I think I would have been very different. And um, so I've got 34 years under my belt of television and I felt like that's a lot of experience, right? But it's also a lot of really good contacts and a lot of good friends who are really good at this. And so to be able to to share uh, all of this fabulous expertise with people who could be experts in in the gallery right now, themselves, um, and want to know more or different, or young people who are thinking, you know, gosh, I'm just getting started. I don't even know what's up yet. Uh, it's just extraordinarily valuable that you would give your time for this. Thank you.
1: My, my pleasure, my honor. Thank you.
0: Don't forget, you can watch me every night on News Nation at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central, and 7 p.m. on the West Coast don't know where to watch us just go to www.joinnn.com enter your zip code and the channel finder will show you where you can find us on your broadcast dial but don't forget we're also on all the streamers hulu roku youtube tv this is ashley vanfield and thanks so much for joining me for this edition of rising tide